personally, I maybe would have looked at a Ford deal two or three years ago. I won't even do due diligence on a Ford deal. Some may say, hey, you may miss an opportunity. If I can't trust that the upper management is going to take care of the dealer, how can I invest our hard-earned dollars into, into that brand? What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Jake Leibowitz is a partner and dealer principal at Raceway Auto Group, a 15-store car dealer group in the New Jersey and Pennsylvania region. This episode was a car business masterclass. We spoke about how much money he makes as a dealer, the secrets to profitably acquiring 15 car dealerships, tricks for consumers to get the best car deal, who are the most profitable customers at a car dealership, and his blunt message to Elon Musk on EVs. Here's my conversation with Jake Leibowitz. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, Jake, let's dive right in. Uh, give us some background on your dealer group. What brands do you represent? Would love to just have some context there. So we are, our largest brand is Kia. We have five Kia dealerships in the metro uh, Philadelphia, Jersey, Pennsylvania markets. Um, we also have Hyundai, Chevy, Audi, Volkswagen, and we've recently acquired a Nissan store. Um, and we have Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge Ram as well, and a Suzu truck, which is a, you know, a medium duty truck franchise. And, and what are your revenues per year? Like, give us just some context. How many cars do you sell a year? We sell anywhere from 1,500 to 2,200 vehicles per rooftop per year. Um, if you extrapolate that to, you know, group wide, I would say you're probably in the, um, you know, 3,000, 2,500 to 3,000, um, you know, a, a year range and, uh, revenue, um, anywhere from 50 to 80 million a rooftop, I would say, um, so 50 to 80 million, you have, you said roughly 15 rooftops. Yep. Yep. So if you do the math, I mean, we're getting close to about a billion in revenue, I would say. It's great. You know, some some of the higher volume stores, you're, you can get up there in the 80 million range, lower volume, maybe 50, 60 million. You mentioned to me, your dealer group, you guys have been very active with just M&A, acquiring dealerships. How many dealerships have you acquired over the last two years? Last two years have been pretty active. Um, and we're we're big on not just buying any deal um, that comes across the desk. We're big on, um, you know, doing deals with a lot of efficiency um, across our uh, platform. So, for instance, uh, you know, we might get called on a deal that we think is a good deal, but maybe it's two, three hundred miles outside of one of our markets. And there's not a lot of, you know, people, process, location efficiency with that deal um doesn't mean we won't look at it but we prefer deals where either we have brand efficiency market efficiency uh people efficiency uh for instance um the we did a deal uh last april which was a kia deal in metro philadelphia and this was a deal that we um we had interest on it for a long time we liked the market um we identified the market based on the uh, annual, the uh, you know monthly annual registrations into the market, and we saw that Kia 
um, had a lot of upside uh, in that market. Um, How did you see that Kia had upside? So basically what we'll do is we'll look at a shared sales report, for instance, and we'll look at how many, um, you know, competitive vehicles are being sold into that market. And, you know, if Kia has, let's say, you know, 10, 8% share and the market's selling, you know, 12, 1500 cars a month, if you just do the math, you know, you should be doing at least a hundred new Kias. And then if you outperform and you conquest and you take share from other brands and you sell out of your market, you could do 150, 200 cars. Um, so, so we're big on also looking at the market and looking at our closest competing dealers. And if we believe they're dealers that we can take um, share from, uh, and I'll give you a good example, in 20. 20- um, 16, we bought Allentown Kia, which is up in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. Amazing market, amazing people, blue collar. Um, we were new to that market. And um, what we found is great, hardworking people. Um, if you treat them right, they'll, they'll you know, buy a car and they'll be happy forever. And um, when we did that deal, we recognized that there were two or three competitive Kia dealers that we're not really that strong in our view, meaning we were more likely to sell cars into their market than them selling our cars, you know, their own cars into, into our market. Why do you think that is? Is it because your platform, your scale? No, you know, I think it's understanding the brand. I think it's understanding how to, um, each brand kind of has its own, um, you know, uh, you kind of have have to find your edge with each brand. And I think over the years... So what's your edge? I would say our edge with Kia is we're the number one volume Kia dealer group in the region by 70% probably. Um, you know, that gives us massive economies of scale. For instance, if I can display three, 400, 500 new Kias on my website... And, you know, the other dealer is displaying 30 new Kias on their website. A, Google now is solely ranking you on inventory. They used to rank you more on content and SEO. And now, if you have the most inventory, you are the most relevant Kia dealer, no matter what. You, so you mentioned you mentioned three Kia stores in three different locations. I think lots of people are wondering and are going to be just fascinated by it. How do you source these stores? Where do you get, like, is this from brokers? Is this from connections? And where, where do you find these stores? Good question. Um, we've used brokers in the past. Uh, we, we haven't recently in our most recent, um, we just acquired a Nissan dealership in Freehold. Um, there was no broker involved on that. Um, How did you get connected to that store? So that store was really just getting connected to the seller um, building a, re- a relationship with the seller, identifying, um, you know, where we may have had leverage, which could be a million things. You may have a piece of real estate in a market that the seller wants. Um, you may have a, a, a dealership in another market that the seller wants. But generally, um, the, the other thing is uh, a lot of sellers have framework agreements. They can only have, say, you know, five of a brand in a market. 
So they may want to buy another one of that brand out, you know, in that market. And, and this may be the store they need to sell. So we identified a, that, that store gave us significant operational efficiency in the market. Um, when I say that, uh, we outsell Honda and Toyota and Hyundai in this market out of a six, maybe a 6,000 square foot building. Um, you know, these other dealers, Toyota, Honda, their, their facilities are 30, 40,000 feet. And we have about 30, 40, 50 parking spaces and they have two, 300. In addition, um, this facility we're in wasn't built to be a car dealership. So we lack, um, you know, we, we lack capacity in the shop. We have six bays. We probably need 26 bays. So we basically knew that in order for us to really grow in this market, which we've done, um, like I said, we're, you know, top volume in the region out of this store. And we outsell Toyota and Honda in a big market, a big metro New Jersey market. So we identified that either we need to develop a piece of property, which we began doing, um, and, and we still are going in that direction. But once this potential deal came um, across our desk as being, you know, viable that we can maybe do the deal, we we saw, okay, this store has 30 bays. They have 300 parking spots. They have 14 technicians. So what does that give us? It gives us all the flexibility that we needed with Kia. It's right across the street. And now, you know, you don't have to go and develop another piece of land if you if you don't want to. Because you can service more cars, service more used cars. You can hold more used cars. And uh, you've got a lot of efficiency in a market like that. You can leverage your best people. Um, so it's very much a case-by-case basis. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, you're saying like pretty much, you know, real estate's obviously a major aspect and we'll talk about that soon. Uh, I'm curious, what are you paying for a dealership like that? And like, you know, for what are the margins? What are the revenues? So... A deal like that, there's significant intangible value there that is hard for anybody except uh, maybe me or, you know, our partners to understand. And basically when I say that, I mean, you know, if you just value Nissan, let's say, maybe Nissan in a good metro market is a three to four multiple, right? So, so just for the audience, three to four times on the net earnings from prior year. Correct. Three to four times. You try to look at three to five year. Um, it's hard to look at just COVID big banner years and, and put a multiple on it and say, hey, this is what it's worth. We um, we run pro for every deal we do. We run a pro forma on where we basically because the other thing is your expense structure is going to change. You're going to have more debt if you're paying more for the store. Um, if you're paying more for the real estate, your rent factor is going to be higher. Um, so we like to basically overlay our planned, um, performance on a pro forma and project, Hey, this is what we can do, uh, at our average new car, used car, gross profit, what we believe we could improve the service, um, you know, labor margins by, for instance, maybe there. 66% labor margin, maybe we're 74, 75%. So we'll extrapolate that and we'll project 
what that brings us to. Um, and of course, volume. If they're selling 60 Nissans and we think we could do 150 Nissans, of course, there's upside there. So, and, and what are the returns you're projecting? Like, what's the IRR payback period? What are you looking for? So, if you just look at that deal, I would say we're looking for 40% IRR, give or take. But if you also add back the upside with giving Kia more capacity, with with having the ability to sell more used cars and service more used cars, right? I would say then your IRR can go up another 15, 20% because Kia is now, I don't know if you saw the latest Kerrigan report, but I believe Kia was in the, mostly in the 5X range. Yeah, Kia's killing it right now. Yeah, and, and Hyundai as well. So if you think about, okay, 5X, if I can generate another million in net income with the added capacity, even if it's just on used car, even if it's just on servicing more used cars, then a million out of 5X adds what? 5 million in added blue sky value. Um, so this deal is very intriguing and interesting. For the audience, blue sky, you just mean multiples. Blue sky, I just mean what is the dealership worth um, beyond the fixed assets? The intangible value. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about your best deal. Like, you know, I think everyone here wants to know, like you've been doing this, you guys have done some great deals and what has been your, your sweetest deal that you've done? So I believe each deal, um, you have to do at the right time. I believe there's almost a cadence to the way you want to execute deals. And I've, I've missed deals where I look back and I'm like, how did I miss that deal? You know, how did I not execute on that? That feels the worst, you know, like, like. Miss, missing a deal is so much worse than making a mistake sometimes. Yeah. Yep. So it, it's it happens to the best of us. You you can't do every deal. You you, you can't buy all the real estate. You know. Um, I think what's important is doing the right deals at the right time. And a lot of a lot of dealers, what I've noticed is they want to just buy every dealership they can buy. They end up you know spreading themselves thin. And they actually go backwards. You know, they're less efficient because they're just doing their, you know, they don't have the capacity to take on the deals they're doing. Whereas we very much look for efficiency. We look for markets with a lot of upside. And if we're paying, say, 10 million blue sky goodwill, we need to see that we can take that store to being worth 20 million or 25 million blue sky. And ultimately, we're not really sellers. We we more so want to identify good deals, generate efficiencies in markets, generate cash flow for a long time. And uh, so I would say our best deal, raw numbers, I would say is is Kia in Freehold. Um, at the time when when I we bought this store, 2017, they were losing money. The reputation was completely battered. Um, I renamed the store from Kia of Freehold to Raceway Kia because there's a local um, racetrack and people are familiar with Raceway. Um, so I went in, I rebranded, um, built the team, uh, took care of the, the the community, which I'm a big believer in is give back to your local community, sponsor Little League, give back to your 
local police directly, give back to your local charities, anything you can do in the community during COVID, giving masks, donating, you know, uh, PP, uh, you know, uh, medical supplies, all of that stuff. That goes a, a long way. So um, Freehold has been a massive deal for us. Um, we we bought the store for south of $2 million, let's just say. And I would say we returned that the, the first year in what was a very challenging year kind of growing the business. Um, and and now I, I would say this is one of our best stores um, platform-wide. Um, and like I said, there's so much upside here. What's that store worth today, do you think? I, I don't really want to speak in, in, in real numbers terms. I'll leave it up to you, Kerrigan and Haig, and a lot of these places or public, um, yeah, you know, publics. You could see what their top Kia Hyundai stores are making. So just assume that you know if we're in the top twenty or twenty five percent, which we we are, um, extrapolate that, multiply it by five, and and you have an idea of what this store is maybe worth. So one thing I'm interested in is, you know, fifteen stores. How do you structure your partnerships? Right, because you're obviously not at every single store every single day managing the business, and so I'm really curious, you know, how you align incentives. You know, do you bring operating partners into every store? How does it, tell me about tell us about that world? Good question. Um, we like to give our operating partners uh, a lot of incentive. That doesn't necessarily mean we give them equity, but it does mean that if they achieve certain growth rates or certain um, income thresholds within a certain period of time that they can earn a bigger piece of whatever maybe the net income is, or if it's a, you know, a sales manager, as they sell more cars, they earn a bigger piece of the gross profit. Um, our, um, it, it depends on the market. Uh, if, if I have a great, uh, general manager in one market that I believe can operate more than one store then we'll let that you know specific operator get involved in two three four stores and earn out of all those stores right now you can't pay everybody on everything so you have to kind of pick your um pick your spots of of hey this is a great operator in this market and if he does a great job in this store let's pay him on it and it all has to work. So, so we generally will, um, you know, we'll run a pro forma on compensation and we'll see if this store goes from, you know, making a million a year to making three, four million a year. What does this gentleman deserve based on, or, or woman deserve based on the, the work? Um, and now we're more and more looking into letting those operators buy real equity down the line. So, hey, if you really help us take off in this store, uh, you know, two, three, four years, we're going to let you buy five, 10, 15% equity at a, maybe a discount to whatever the store is actually worth. And then it gives them a real incentive to, to A, take care of the business like it's their own, to grow the, the, the culture, to, to build the culture and to do to do business the right way, um, I think a lot of old school dealers 
weren't properly incentivizing, um, you know, general managers for the long term. And I think a lot of uh, dealers found out the hard way. So we're big on long term incentivize, you know, incentivization and giving somebody real career growth over time. And then when you say operating partner, I'm, I'm assuming you don't necessarily mean a general manager. Is that right? It, the 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 operating partner may be the general manager. Uh, many of my stores, I structure them as I personally will take equity in the deal, you know, 25, 33%, however much. Um, and then I have a couple partners that have equity in the deal. Um, and then on top of that, I may identify a general manager that may get paid on the net profit every month and get a piece at the end of the year. Um, it, it depends on the market. You know, every store may not need that general manager in it. If you have efficiencies in a market, you may not need as much personnel at that level. Um, but yeah, I would say uh, a general manager is not always an operating partner, first of all, right? But a general manager generally can turn into an operating partner if they execute over time, uh, you know, say somebody is every year they're growing new cars. Um, we got Kia President's Club in Freehold and Contra Hockey in Kia. If you're getting accolades like that and you're achieving, you know, great results over time, we're going to give you an opportunity to buy um, equity, which is going to help them earn um, over time. So this is, I mean, fa fascinating details. Let's let's shift gears a bit. I want to go into the operations because I think a lot of people are very curious, like the nitty gritty of running the business. Specifically, what are the most and least profitable customers that you service? So I believe in, you know, serving all customers the same. But when you say, when you ask that question, I immediately think of wholesale parts. Those customers, they could be, you know, um, aftermarket parts warehouses. They can be body shops. Those customers are largely running on credit and the margins are extremely thin. Um, I actually really try to avoid that business. Um, you know, your margins might be 10%, 12% if, if that. So you're, you're, you're putting a lot of time, um, a lot of resources. And if one of those customers goes belly up, it could cost you a lot of money. And the, for me, the, the parts manager's job is to keep the parts department clean. And if all day they're focused on this low margin business, where is their opportunity for them to take advantage of the higher margin business? Which um, is what? Which is counter retail, you know, selling a, a roof rack to a customer or, um, you know, just helping the used car department source parts. You know, that's hugely important, as you know, as a used car dealer. Um, you know, uh, in addition, your your service department is hugely profitable. So your customers that are coming in for their 15, 30, 45, 60K services, they're hugely valuable. What are the margins there? I would say labor anywhere from 65, 75% gross margin and parts you're anywhere from 40 to 45%. And 
that's also where your your um your OEM warranty comes into play, which as you know is is hugely profitable. And the OEMs will are paying the dealer to to fix the cars. So And what's what's the margin on an OEM warranty? How does that get priced? So the OEMs basically look at your customer um your warranty like customer pay, they call it. So if you're selling a customer, say a um a um, you know an engine job right they'll look at hey the dealer is selling the customer this engine job for x and they'll look at maybe a hundred or two or three hundred consecutive repair orders and they'll identify your warranty rates off of that so they're basically you know they, they don't just say hey we're paying you x basically a lot of the states um legislated that as a dealer, you have the right to ask the factory for a certain amount of warranty um, dollars. And, you know, the, the strong dealers, I believe, ask for what they are entitled to. Um, so that that's kind of how it works. And it's a moving target. Every every year, every couple of years, you need to reassess and, and align. How, how do you feel about the used car space right now? You know, we haven't touched on this just yet. But you know, thinking through margins and opportunities in a dealership, your your franchise, you know, you, you guys have a it's all franchise every single store. What's your general take on used cars, and you know, what what are you doing in store right now? How are you directing your teams in terms of inventory management? So uh, another huge advantage of of having scale and having many dealerships is is data, right? If I have let's say fifteen or twenty rooftops, and I can see data, more data points, kind of like, you know, why did Google outperform Ask Jeeves or Yahoo? Because they had more data and they had more um, efficiencies across their their platform. And what I mean by that is every month, every week, even every day, I look at the, the car business as a you know, you need like day trading attention. Yeah, we're like a stock market. I was just having this conversation the other day with another CEO. You likely know him, but yeah, we're just saying like, what this is like, we're like tracking a stock market. Yeah. So, um, I'll send out quarterly uh, used car summaries, some of which you've seen to to my teams, which include you know general managers, general sales managers, used car managers, even the BDC. And what I noticed. That was interesting. I believe in November, December of of this la- of uh, twenty two, um, was that a time where you would expect seasonal weakness? We saw used car day supply go from fifty three fifty four to forty three forty four. So day supply went down, which means that there's less inventory available. Which means there's less inventory available in a seasonally softer time. And I noticed that across all of my rooftops, used car water was going like this, which is your, you know, your, um, your profit or, uh, your loss in your used car inventory. Pretty much the difference from it's, yeah, the difference from what it's worth to the lenders on book versus what you actually own it. Correct. So what I was able to identify at that time was that, Hey, day supply is trending lower. Water is trending lower. Uh, even though the macro was bleak and, and a little scary, I, I, I understood that structurally the used car market had changed. There's less lease returns coming back. 
you know, there there's very little fleet lease business. So you're not you're not seeing those volume cars that you used yeah. to see. And and what else? Now it costs you used to be able to buy a Kia Forte for, you know, eighteen thousand new and the same Kia Forte is twenty five thousand new, right? Wow. So you know, the the 2019 or 2020 Kia Forte or Honda Civic or Honda Elantra is going to be worth structurally more than what it was worth, you know, pre-supply issue where you're leasing cars and they're coming back off and, and you have rental companies selling cars into the market. So what we um, try to do is take advantage. So, so when I noticed that, my email went out and it said, hey, step up trade every car you can don't don't not trade a car if you're 2000 away if it's a good car meaning you know it's a car that's going to sell less than 60 days let's say right because in 2 3 months you've got february march you've got tax time coming you've got the strong season coming and i just was able to forecast that it was likely that the market would go higher and and it has and you know those quarterly um um you know stats that i look at generally have been hugely valuable as a group it's enabled us to have similar strategy and and the other thing that i'm big on is almost like um like retail arbitrage to give you an example the metro new jersey markets pickup trucks might not move quickly lehigh valley they move like that right so if i'm able to trade a pickup truck in metro new jersey and ship it to you know rural pennsylvania where you used to maybe send that truck to the to the sale to make the money now you're able to you know make the money wholesale through the dealer who traded it and then you're able to retail it and make the right amount of money on the retail end you're able to make the warranty reinsurance and service it so that's why you're seeing so many less cars at the auction is because you've got a lot of dealer groups that are understanding that different cars work better in different markets and they're shifting vehicles to to different um to different metros yeah i think hearing everything you're saying i it's it's pretty fascinating how much the business has changed and how like you said it's you're treating it almost like a stock market when it comes to inventory management which is obviously, you know, it's the largest line item on the balance sheet. I, you know, it makes me feel like I don't see how franchise dealers that are single point locations can truly compete in the long run here, even in the short run, frankly. But it just seems like there's, you know, you need to, you need so much sophistication and, you know, the economies of scale at this point. It's just, I, I think it's, you know, really, really uphill battle for these single point dealerships. What do you think? Totally agree. I think, um, the smaller um, mom and pop dealers, you know, it's going to be that even if they are truly exceptional operators, not having the economies of scale like we spoke about. And in addition, you have more stores, you have more cost efficiency. You know, if you can run an office out of one location and you don't have to hire three clerks, a title clerk, a, a accounts receivable, an HR you're saving 20, 30,000 a month right there. And, you know, these smaller stores, it's either adapt and outperform with an edge um, 
but even if they adapt and outperform with an edge, it's still going to be difficult by not having those efficiencies like a larger dealer has. So, yeah, I mean, I think you've already seen a ton of consolidation. Um, you know, those are also what we target are the smaller dealers and markets that we like. So, for instance, um, if we like a certain metro New Jersey market, we'll identify, hey, this is not publicly owned or this is not large group owned. Let's let's, you know, create a relationship with the seller and you know, not just approach them, hey, sell me your dealership. It's hey, you know, let's become friends, let's understand each other. And when you're ready to maybe part ways with your store, give me the first shot. Right. And and that's worked wonders for us over the years. And I believe it will continue to to be that way. You mentioned brands you like, but I'm curious, like what brands don't you like right now from a dealer's perspective or from a consumer's perspective, frankly? Like what brands do you think are just, you know, on the decline and for what reason? Um, I think right now domestics are in a tough position and I'm a Chevy dealer. Um, we, we love Chevy. Um, you know, but the domestics have sort of found themselves in a, in a little bit of a, a spot where it's very expensive for them to produce vehicles, right? Um, you know, whether that be union labor issues or whether that be the way they source their supply chain. Now, the Koreans are excellent with that, right? And and so I think it's important to understand, um, you know, who is positioned which way. And I, I believe hugely in Chevy. Um, they take care of the dealer. I believe Ford is a domestic where you can look at it and say, okay, they've got domestic headwinds in, in production, but they're also sort of alienating their dealers, right? How so? How so? Jim Farley with his, you know, um, anti-dealer profit campaigns and um, his EV, um, you know, hey, you're going to sell direct to consumer or we're not going to give you EV. I, I think the, the, the good progressive OEMs have learned that dealers are their best customer and dealers are their best source of growth. And, um, you know, if you want to just go and alienate dealers, you're, you're going to find yourself in a hard um, position, especially with franchise law, right? Franchise law basically means that dealers cannot go direct to consumer. Dealer OEMs have to go through dealerships. And there are associations like NJ Carr and PAA, and every state has its own lobby association that battles on behalf of dealers to ensure that no OEM is going to try to ever cut them out. And at any, you know, at any instance where that happens, the uh, local lobbyists step up and, and they do what needs to be done. So personally, I maybe would have looked at a Ford deal two, three years ago. I won't even look, I won't even do due diligence on a Ford deal now. Um, you know, some may say, hey, you may miss an opportunity. But if I can't trust that the upper management is going to take care of the dealer, how can I invest our hard-earned dollars into into that brand, right? So Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, so like Nissan, on the other hand, I, I believe um, 
you know, Kerrigan recently showed that Nissan dealer demand is is increasing, and Nissan multiples have remained steady. So the multiple is kind of going higher. Dealer demand has gone, you know, up, um, which means that I believe now is a great time to identify and buy Nissan. But that doesn't mean just buy it in, you know, rural West Virginia, right? It maybe means look at the good markets where they used to sell two, 300 Nissans and they're now selling 70 or 80. And maybe there, some of those deals make sense, especially if you have an efficiency in that market. Um, so domestics, um, I think Subaru, I think is challenging to understand. Um, Subaru is a phenomenal product. It's got a, you know, a cult-like following for sure. But I do think Subaru multiples got a bit ahead of themselves and a bit elevated. Um, Subaru got all the way up into the seven, eight range. Um, and, and me personally, if he, if you're offering me a Subaru store or a Hyundai or Kia store, I'm going to take the Hyundai or, or Kia store. Wow. Most of the time, not all the time, it depends on the market. Um, but ultimately if you think of just raw math, right, if you're paying seven, eight on a store that's making 3 million, you know, that's 21 to 24 million, right, of, of catch outlay versus a four or five multiple making 3 million is 12 to 15 million. So you have to spend another eight to 10 million to maybe generate similar returns. To, to, to me, I think it eats into your IRR, it eats into your, you know, compounded adjust, you know, your, your, your compounded return over time. And, um, I think Subaru will be just fine. I just can't see myself paying a seven multiple for something that I believe might be closer to in the in the five, five and a half range. Yeah. It just seems like, yeah, I mean, Subaru, Toyota, you know, they're at the top of the market. They've been there. And it seems like, you know, you mentioned Kia, Hyundai, Nissan. There's just more upside with those brands. Yeah. If you, if you and and when we were you know, largely acquiring Kia and Hyundai deals, Kia and Hyundai was maybe a, a two multiple, you know, maybe a one and a half, two multiple. So anytime you can acquire something. Yeah, it's unbelievable seeing how far they've come. Yeah, and look, what have they done? They, they, they've executed, right? They've built the right cars at the right time. The Telluride is unbelievable. The, the week it came out, it was flawlessly executed and they're hotter now than ever. And something that's very interesting is I was in uh, the Palm Beach area a couple months ago, and I heard multiple wealthy people saying, Kia Telluride is unbelievable. My wife drives one. My cousin drives one. And I, I never heard that before. You'd always kind of hear, oh, but it's a Kia, right? And and what Kia did with their, um, with their uh, logo change was they basically changed the way that the customer perception and it was it was flawless execution and I, I remember you even had a post you know people are searching kn right people thought it looked a little off but it was more so kia basically making the statement that hey this is not the old kia this is the new kia of the future and and kind of watch what we do and i think a lot of brands can learn a lot from Kia and Hyundai and 
not just how they're building cars and how they're designing cars, but what they do and, you know, how they take care of dealers. And when I say that, my Kia, um, yeah, and I'm on Kia Dealer Council, and, and my local, even if I wasn't, my local Kia VPs, regional, national, they would take my call at midnight if I have a call, and they'll address a concern on the spot. Whereas, I guarantee you try to get a Honda executive on the phone, you will not hear from them for some time. You know, really, really interesting. Um, I, we just picked up a minivan or we're in the midst of getting a Sienna and, it, you know, into the family, family's growing, we need more space and whatnot. And I, I get a lot of DMs. And so a lot of people were asking me, um, they're like, I'm really curious why you chose Sienna over Carnival, the, the, the mm-hmm. Kia's version of the minivan. And I actually found that fascinating because like you go back 10 years, that would never even be a comparison. It's like, that's a joke. But now, yeah. and, and, I'll, and I'll be honest with you, my, my response was frankly that that was where I, I got a deal first and yep. it made sense. And listen, you can't go wrong with Toyota, obviously, but truthfully, it was, it was, it, it was a good question, you know? And, and I was like, wow, I didn't expect to get that from so many people on my well, DMs. He, he, here's a great example. I have a client who has a Kia Carnival SX, which is the, high, the higher level ones, and going back to turn, only the dealers with above 85, 90, 95% turn were getting those carnivals. So they're they're in that they were in very short supply and they're still in very short supply. Um, you know, people ask why. More microchips to build them. Um, you know, harder to build, harder to source, you know, it might be harder to source the windshield glass or the navigation components or the leather components, right? That's used in, in that vehicle. But a, a client came to me looking for a Telluride um, SX, and they had a Kia Carnival SX lease. About two years in, they were already about 25,000 over miles, which will generally cost you, you know, 15, 20 cents a mile, right? And this customer has about 12,000 equity in that lease on the Carnival SX that their over mileage by 20, 25,000 miles on, now they've got 12,000 in equity that they could use towards their Telluride. So what does that tell you? It tells me that the demand is extremely strong, that Kia themselves didn't realize how strong these would hold up. And what I've noticed over the last one, two, three years is minivans are extremely strong. And I do is not it? see the demand fading for that uh, anytime yeah. soon. Minivans, yeah, minivans are hot. People were telling me, oh, you're, you're going with minivan gang. I said, listen, I'm a dealer. To us, yeah. the minivans are like the Rolex. Like, you know, we get those things, they fly off the shelf. So I value it very highly. Um, but Absolutely, yeah. Especially the way they're making them now with, you know, the seats go all the way back and they've got like full <laughs> yeah. TVs. It's wild. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of demand, you know, we have lots of dealers that listen to this. We have lots of vendors, investors, and, you know, many things. But we also have lots of consumers and just car shoppers. So yeah. really curious to hear from you. What do you think or what can consumers do to maximize the deal they get from a from a dealership? So I think that's a good question. Um, Basically, in, in layman's terms, people want a good fucking deal. How do they get it? <laughs> so I think consumers are smarter and more well-researched than ever. You know, you've got you on Twitter, right? Which uh, I love, obviously. Um, But consumers, they have so much information at their fingertips and they know that, 
you know, they're not going to get a Kia Telluride SX for invoice, right? It's not going to happen because the market is efficient, right? It's like you can't go and buy Berkshire Hathaway stock at, you know, $150 a share if it's $350 a share. And, and you know, consumers, they understand and they research. So what I suggest is, A, dealers need trades, right? So if you have a trade that you're borderline on, always try to bring it to the table, right? Because that's a huge edge as a consumer and a dealer will always be willing to step up in a trade. Um, additionally, a bank will always generally give you a better APR if there's a trade in the mix, especially an open credit line trade. Um, additionally, I would say, you know, just be real with the dealer. Hey, you know, I'm looking for, you know, a, a Kia Forte, and I want to be here, and I believe good dealers that operate with integrity are going to do their best within their process um, to to get you the, the deal that you need. Um, and especially the dealers with more scale, you know, if, if, if I sell, say, seven, 800 new Kias a month, I may be willing to take that shorter deal that, you know, um, the little small rural Kia dealer only sells 40 isn't willing to take because they just don't have the inventory, right? So um, I would shop your larger platform dealers. I would always try to bring a trade to the table. I would um, definitely always do your research, right? Trust, but verify. Um, and, you know, ask questions. Ask the internet sales department questions on, you know, what's your day's supply? Uh, if my day supply on a vehicle is five, you're not you're you're not going to get a great deal on it because there's too much demand, right? But if I have a you know if I have sixty Kia Fortes, I'm going to give you a great deal on that car, and you may get a great deal on a low day supply car if it's you know if we're short of a number or if we have a high objective in a certain month. That doesn't mean we're going to do that deal the last day of the month, but mid-month, we may be willing to take a little bit shorter, lighter of a deal if it's a month where our objectives might be higher. Yep. Yep. Some some great alpha. So so flipping to the macro before we wrap up, what do you think prices look like by next year and you know specifically new versus used? Again, these things have been so volatile here over the last year. In 2022, we saw used car prices sort of just come down linearly every single month. And then boom, we had a pop in January and it's sort of been going up since then. Um, new car prices, of course, have been coming down, uh, not equally distributed across the board. Uh, you know, the Asian brands are still selling for above MSRP in most places and there's shortages. The domestic brands uh, are now, you know, offering more incentives on certain models and makes. Oh, but on an aggregate, what do you see for prices on the U side, on the new side within a year? So... This is a very tricky question. It's tricky because we still have increasing um, cost of capital, right? So anytime a OEM has to pay a higher VIG, you know, to hold their own capital, the supply that they're putting into the market is going to probably be priced a little bit higher to offset their their carrying costs, number one. Um, number two, inventory levels definitely remain constrained. Used car inventory levels. 
new car inventory levels are slowly increasing, but certain segments are increasing much more than others. For instance, um, your your smaller sedans, you might be seeing more supply of those because they're easier to produce than your third row, um, you know, your 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 pathfinders or your um, tellurides or your traverses, right? Because th those cars just take more to produce. So I believe that inflation and higher rates are going to stick around for a bit. I believe the cost to produce vehicles is going to remain quite high. I think that vehicle prices on the new car side will stay elevated for the next 6 to 12 months. But I think after 6 to 12 months, they will come down and level out a bit. Um, you know, the, the other thing is that OEMs are, are very strategically um, not placing too many incentives on, on vehicles. They're instead trying to use that money as um, subvented rate money. So, you know, if you can still get 0% or 1.9% as a consumer, it's worth more to you than getting $1,500 in rebate cash, right? So the, the OEMs recognize this. They recognize what segments are um are hot so i don't foresee like carnivals and tellurides and palisades tanking in price anytime soon I, I don't i don't foresee used car prices really going that much lower over the next 12 months 12 24 36 yeah you might get a little bit of a decline i think once you know, the, the economy maybe takes a little bit of a step back. But again, we, you know, the, the SAR was what, two, three years ago. It, it was supposed to be 18, 19 million, and I think it was maybe 11 or 12. And, and just for the audience, by SAR, you just mean how many new cars sold in a year, which should have been closer to 19 million, but really we sold 11. So we just had this crazy underproduction of vehicles. Correct. Uh, also, you have, you know, de-urbanization. You have people moving from Manhattan into New Jersey or into Connecticut. You have people moving from San Fran and LA to Arizona or to Seattle, right? Or, or whatever it is. And what happens? They stop taking transit and they start driving their car more. So it's a, it, it's like a double effect of demand side where the, the, the demand side is driving price, right? Uh, supply even if even if OEMs can ramp up supply, you still have that demand component and people need cars. And the average age of the vehicle on the road is, uh, I don't know, 13 years. So I think the other thing that people aren't really talking about is um, twofold. Number one, warranty costs uh, and warranty um, prices to consumers and you know, uh, costs to service your vehicle at 30K, what what happens with inflation? Labor costs go up and your cost to service your car is going to go high, uh, you know, higher. So I think that will also force people into buying new cars. If they have a 60K service and, you know, they, they need to put up 2,500 to change their uh, injectors or, or their throttle body or whatever it is, they might just buy a new car. So 
I think that will create more demand. And you, you might not see, you, you may see strong new car sales prices for 24 months. It, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And um, also EVs, you know, what about EV battery costs? There had a customer the other day, it was 36000 to replace their battery. You know, you don't hear Elon Musk talking about that, but down the line, um, that that's a factor. Elon gave the pod a shout out. Nice. So, you know, Elon, if you're listening, we got to get you on the pod, talk a little bit about the, the economy and the EVs and what's happening. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's your plan, you know, for for battery costs and, and if a customer needs to replace a battery in two, three years, um, you know, is are you going to are you going to give them a tax credit into a new car, or you or uh, or uh, any credit into a new car, or are they just going to have to stomach that massive, um, you know, uh, cost to, to replace that battery? This has been awesome, dude. Had just you know really learned a lot, and I think people will really love this episode. If people want to hear uh, learn more about Raceway Group yourself, I mean, where, where can they go to learn more? So Raceway Auto Group, you know, we have multiple Kia stores. I've got Raceway Chevy in PA. I've got, um, uh, we've got stores in Burlington, New Jersey. We've got stores in Allentown, PA. Um, you know, you, you can learn more about me at uh, any of our Raceway Kia websites or, or LinkedIn, or I'm always open to engaging with customers. Um, you know, the other thing I didn't really mention is that um, I think customers now more than ever, they understand that every dealer has different value propositions and if me as a dealer are going to give you three years of, of oil changes you know lifetime car washes loaner cars and other benefits throughout the life of your your vehicle ownership that's worth a lot to a customer um we provide uber and lifts for for customers for for service uh, appointments so I think price is a byproduct of value, right? And I know myself personally, the, the way I believe I can continue performing is to provide massive value to my customers and to my employees. And any store you walk into of mine, I think you'll you'll feel the environment, you'll feel the energy and the culture. And uh, you know, I instill in my people to to take care of of, of your customers. To, to give back to the community and to uh, to do right to do right by people every day, even when somebody's not not watching. So, um, you know, if you need a Kia, Nissan, Chevy, Audi, I, I didn't really touch much on Audi, but I have Audi in Wyoming Valley, PA. We love Audi as a luxury brand. You, you personally, uh, you've experienced Audi, um, and they are tremendous cars. I'm very very bullish on Audi um, into the future. And um, yeah, happy to take care of anybody personally. Uh, you could email me at jake at com. I will personally help you make a deal. Um, I'll get on the phone. I'll, I'll work the bank to get your deal done. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he, he's an executive level. He's an executive <laughs> level guy. Why, why would he help me? But honestly, I miss, you know, closing deals and working the desk and there's nothing better than that so any chance i get to work with a customer to me is is a beautiful thing so reach out to me and um also i've got a website sell us your um we'll buy leases for cash so you can see your your equity and 
and we'll we'll take your lease, we'll pick it up, and we'll cut you a check. So there's my plug. Uh, appreciate appreciate the time. This was awesome. I had a blast, and thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.